Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to the Badge Boys, the show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stopper Sergeant Darren Birch, and unfortunately, not in studio again this week is Jason Sexually. He's going to be gone for, oh my gosh, until late July. He's not scheduled to be back until late July. So we uh, wish him safe travels. Uh, he's doing great work, uh, inspiring maybe millions. Because when he was in England, he ah. was at what they call the pitch, uh, which is you know our field or soccer field, but their football pitch. And he had a standing ovation of some... 67,000 people. I mean, that's nuts. That's uh, yeah, it's like not that if anyone's deserving of it, it's Jason. But I mean, you're in, a, you're in a stadium like that and they're looking for the athletes and then he steps out and he yeah. gets that standing ovation. It's I like know. rock star status. Oh, he's definitely our rock star. So we miss him. But uh, hey, I have uh, Rock and Robin Cote as my uh, my my surrogate uh, Jason. So I'm in good hands. Super glue and duct tape is present. That's it. So in our second segment, we'll have another Cops and Robin. And then, of course, in the third segment, we're going to have some good stupid suspect stories and inspirational clothes and heroic headlines but this first segment i'm really excited about i picked up a book it's called red lights and beyond death dying and destruction it's a collection of true stories from a fire ems uh, professional air medical and he also was at the medical examiner's office so uh it goes into a lot of crime stuff in in the relationship with the fire department ems and so forth and the uh the author uh david Pope and uh, his EMS career began in 1985 and ran to 1996. Uh, the same department morphed into a fire EMS department in 1996 of that year, and David stayed until his retirement uh, in 2010. From 1987 through 1994, he also worked part time with the Air Medical Trauma Team, as well as instructing and percepting the the local College of Health Science. Uh, this guy is embedded in that medical community to a point where he also worked as a, a, in the ME's office uh, with the office of the Chief Medical Examiner uh, years prior or four years, excuse me, prior to his retirement. So it's with a great honor and uh, a lot of fun, quite frankly, because I've really enjoyed this book. Um, to talk with Dave Pope. Dave, welcome to Badge Boys. Well, Darren, thank you very much. And Robin in the uh, in the office there somewhere. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity. I've been looking forward to it. You know, uh, and I, I'm, I'm always sincere when I talk about these books. I just love these books. I love books from our heroes. And you, you, you are absolutely a hero. I've read the book, so I know you're going to throw back on that. But, sir, you are absolutely a hero. You've saved lives countless. And j that's just on the chapters I've read so far. And as I've said, I haven't finished the book, darn it. I was hoping to finish it before we went on air. But uh, I love what I read. I read easily half the book. And uh, the lives you've saved, the lives you've touched, um, those you saved, those you didn't. And you're very honest. You're very straightforward with you know the pain uh but the beginning part or excuse me i'm going to begin at the end i'm just going to read a real quick spot in this uh the epilogue um we talk about our humor 
Humor is sometimes funny only to the person attempting to be funny. It can also catch on if all involved are on the same page, so to speak. For example, imagine a group of first responders, predominantly paramedics and EMTs, digging through a collapsed building and searching for the remains of several people. I assure you, they will be extremely solemn while cameras or other people not in the business are around. When they are all by themselves, well, they are not so defined. And you go on and talk about the humor that we use. And, you know, some people refer to it as morgue humor, graveyard sense humor, whatever it is. Um, can you tell me why you feel that's important? Well, I believe uh, when when ordinary people are doing extraordinary things, the humor, if you don't use that, then you internalize things that you see, things that you do. Thank you. And I, and I mentioned two or three times in the book that you cannot unsee this stuff. Yeah. You know, it, it's stuffed in the back of your head forever. So if, if you can't find some relief or some release, and for me and for a lot of my cohorts, uh, humor was the way to go. And it, it seemed to help. Yeah, I, I'm, and we talked a little bit about this before we started the show. I absolutely concur wholeheartedly. I worry about today's uh, men and women in in these the profession, whether it be fire or police. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's we have to be professional, and that's why I love when you talk about when the cameras there, when people are there. We are professional. It's just within ourselves we will have this this demented dark sense of humor to keep us from literally losing it on the job and almost desensitizing ourselves from the horrors that we're dealing with in the moment. Uh, there's a perfect example of this in your book. There's a chapter called The Leg. Could you share that with our audience? Oh, God. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can, I guess. <laughs> the, uh, that, it, this starts off in the middle of the night and um, got a call. And I was working in conjunction with a volunteer at the time that had some medical uh, difficulties, if you will. And he uh, took a drug called Valium on a fairly regular basis, unfortunately. So this was the middle of the night and I get a call for a motorcycle accident, not far from the station. And I go into the room to, to, to wake my partner and I dragged him at, literally into the floor and he was still snoring. And so luckily there was another person staying in the station due to his marital problems at the time. <laughs> and, uh, so I asked him to help me out and luckily he, he went with me and he was another paramedic. And so we went and, uh, we got, we got to the scene and a lot of times you'll, you'll get a call for something that sounds horrible and it turns out to be a laceration or, you know, cause the, the person that called it in really didn't realize what it was. And. So we get there really not knowing what we're going to see. And I looked out the window and there's this guy laying on the, on the ground, flashing his uh, stub around. And I went, Oh hell, you know, <laughs> he really did lose a leg. And so we get out and start taking care of the patient. And uh, there was a police officer uh, nearby. And I looked at him, I said, you know, where's the leg? And he said, it's over by the telephone pole. And it was the motorcycle accident. The guy had hit the pole. And then I said, well, you know, get it put it in a sheet and put it in the ambulance and we'll take it to the hospital with us. So we get the guy all set up and get a couple of lines in him and get to the uh, ER and we take him inside and turn over to the, uh, the doctors inside. And I told him, I said, look, we brought the leg. I'll go back out and, and get it. And they said, well, good. So I go out to the ambulance and I look around, I'm looking around the floor for the leg. I look between the front seats. And I'm going, what the hell did he do with it? And then I looked up on the bench seat. 
and uh, there was this bloody sheet up there. I'd been sitting on it probably. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so I, I unbuckled and he had it buckled in. So I unbuckled the leg and I'm walking uh, back down this breezeway toward the entrance to the ER. And there's a guy walking up the other way and he's in scrubs. So I figure he's a doctor or a nurse or something. So he comes up there and I'm close to the door and I have the leg with the uh, the foot sticking out of the end of the sheet. And I kind of waved it at the guy. I said, Hey, give me a hand. I already got a foot. And he looked at me, said, man, you're a sick son of a bitch. And I said, and your point is <laughs> anyway, unfortunately they could not reattach the leg. Aww. It was too mangled. So, yeah. but, uh, you know, we gave it a shot. Yeah, exactly. Good for you. And, I, I like and that, that was, nonchalant answer. We gave it a shot. Yeah, yeah I did the best because of what we had. So. Yeah, you, and that's really what it's all about. You, we I do, didn't cause the accident. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. We do the best we can, and I yeah. love the humor. And again, it's within the confines sure. of that hospital, and and they have they they totally understand that. There's times where what we see is so profoundly sad. And then we have to do something that, like you said, humans shouldn't have to see, let alone do. There's a story in the book that uh, it almost got me to tears. In fact, I had to stop from crying. Uh, the, the chapter is called, and I also love how you, you don't refer to them as chapters. You refer to them as incidents. I love that. <laughs> this was incident eight. That's it. That's all I have. Uh, yeah, the part yeah. that got to me was really the end part where you go home to get a hug from the wife. Can you tell us about this story? And and then after you tell the story, I'd love to hear, you know, the, and I know in the in the chapter you never had contact with this young man again. Um, and I say young man, I, I can't even remember how old he was. I remember his name, but believe it or not. But um, I, I was curious if, if since the book, if you've, you know, had some people reach out and so forth because smaller towns and so forth. Um, can you tell us that story? Yeah. Well, uh, we got a call for a person uh, trapped in a, a large roller in a textile mill. And um, there, the engine company and the paramedics were already there before I got there. And I walked in to see all the people just looking at this guy. And my the paramedic that was uh, one of my best and one of my most seasoned, quite frankly, at the time. And I was the supervisor. Um, had already started an IV on the guy and, uh, had oxygen on him. So she was doing the best she could with, with what she had to deal with. And we looked over the situation. The guy's arm was trapped just below the elbow or all the way up to just below the elbow. And it was in this roller that had a lot of tiny knives, basically it's like little razor blades all through it. And the purpose of it was to spread the material as it went through the textile plant. And he knew for a fact when he got stuck, that he was in a lot of trouble. And we talked to the manager of the plant. There was no way to disassemble the machine. There was no way to reverse it without killing him. And he was just fortunate that he had cut the machine off before he got caught. And it was on the wind down process, or it would have taken him through it. He would have gone all the way through at it. At this point, been. he's, conscious he's not oh, totally unconscious. Conscious. Yeah, yeah crazy and in a lot of pain obviously yeah and um i called the hospital and i i told them the situation and i said uh you know if you if you want to send out a uh, nurse anesthetist and a 
and somebody with a bone saw, I'll be a happy camper. Please. Hit, hit. And, and the word back from the ER was, we really don't have anybody to send. Go ahead with the procedure if you think you can do it. I went, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Just the idea so, of a bone saw, you know, that right? that just puts it right oh, into it perspective. Gets, and it gets worse. It gets worse. Yeah, worse. and so <laughs> I got worse. a scalpel out of an OB kit. Uh, obstetrics kit and then i got uh one of the engine company guys to go get a hacksaw just in case and um and so i'm on top of this machine with a mirror trying to see where i'm cutting on his arm with the scalpel and we had already loaded him up with uh, i think about 20 of morphine at the time and you're in a precarious and, situation because you're on this machine that has these razor blades in essence i, I put i got a a rubber mat yeah from the uh the mill the textile mill and put it over the part where i had to lay on it so it wouldn't cut me yeah and oh so I, I get down there and i'm using a, a a mirror to see where i'm cutting and i started with the scalpel and i went all the way around just above the elbow i couldn't get any further uh with the scalpel and he's and awake. Then un unfortunately i i all i had left was bone and <sighs> And then I, I got the, uh, the engine lieutenant, I think it was, uh, to sterilize the blade as best he could. And he gave me the hacksaw and I start working and I'm talking to this guy the yeah. whole time. I mean, he's not only conscious, he's communicating. And then every once in a while he'd scream out and I told him, I certainly don't blame you. I'd be screaming like a little girl. God. And, uh, so anyway, so I, I ended up starting with the, the, the hacksaw. And it was too cumbersome or too large to be able to get where I needed to go. So I, I took the blade off of it and wrapped the end of it with tape so I could make a little handle. And then I started working on him and I got him, got him out. And after I uh, finished, uh, finished getting him out, I handed him off to Karen, who was the paramedic that had been helping me the whole time. And that's when I just looked at him. I said, that's it. That's all I got. And you talk about in the book where the hospital is asking you to, you know, bring the arm so they can attach it. And you have to explain to them the reality of this situation. There is no really yeah. arm. It's yeah. mush. Yeah. Yeah. There was just mush and, and it was in the machine. Yeah. And, and, and they so, had to, you know, they had to, uh, I don't know how they got it cleaned out, and that was their I'm problem. getting such a visual of this. Yes. It's amazing how you're describing it, because I'm like watching a horror movie in my mind right now. And <laughs> yeah. to, to maintain it, it, such... Um, I, I'm not sure what the word is. Composure. Uh, composure, yeah. exactly. Competence in doing this. I mean, you're sawing some guy's arm off with a makeshift hacksaw yes. that's taped up at the and, end. And talking to the guy as this is happening. Yeah. And then, which I think is very telling, and I talk about this in, in, in cop all the time, we call it, we call it, you go in cop mode. So I don't know what phrase you would use, sir, when you talk about this is, even though this is ho so horrific, this is not something you woke up and said, you know, I think I want to cut off a guy's arm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, in a makeshift yeah. manner with blades all around me oh while he's awake and talking to me. But then you go home and tell me about that, please. Well, yeah, when I got home the next, I guess it was the next morning, really. And I just walked in the, the door and looked at my wife. I said, you're not going to believe what I had to do last night. And... um and I told her, and I just got a big hug. Yeah. Aww. I, it, that brought me to tears, because it's when you, 
kind of let that that strength down if you want to call it strength or, your or vulnerability. That hat. you take yeah. you take your your ems hat off you take your paramedic yeah. hat off you take the cop hat off and then you're you're vulnerable you're human and you're telling your wife and i seriously ser- ser- it, it literally brought me to tears it's it so broke my cool heart. it's so cool because when we we've heard so many stories from first responders whether it's police officers or firefighters or emts whatever so many of the stories where they have to compartmentalize this and not take it home because they can't share the details with their spouse because of a lot of reasons. The idea that you actually did that and she was receptive and gave you the comfort that you needed in that moment, that's, that is really freaking cool. All I can say yeah. is your, your wife is pretty damn cool. And, and the fact that you two have that kind of relationship where you can share those details is amazing. Well, you have to realize too. She was a senior probation officer, so she she she's had seen the worst of the worst. Too, yeah. Sure. yeah, that's awesome yeah. though, because then you guys complement each other, and it's not this fear of I can't tell my spouse anything because I can't lay that on them, like so many police and officers talk about. He, he kind of hit that in the beginning when he talked about what reason we joke is so we don't internalize. If you don't go home and talk to someone, the loved one, and, and be able to be human again. Uh, then you are internalizing. Do you agree, sir? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, yeah. Y- this incredible career uh, then goes into all sorts of places, and, and we don't even have time to go in all the places I want to go, but I do want to talk about the early part. I told you I was going to go backwards. We, we went mm-hmm. right from the end of the book. Now I'm going to go to the beginning of the book. You talk about a flood, and if you could put us to why, and this is a, a question best asked by my dear friend and cohort in crime Jason Shackley when he always asked our guests why you wanted to become that cop or why you want to become that paramedic or and so forth you know why'd you raise your hand and commit to something bigger than yourselves if you could talk about that and then your if you will your rookie year and the flood of emotions and that was a, a, a legitimate pun by the way sir yeah, indeed <laughs> pun, pun intended obviously thank you <laughs> Well, actually, my, my whole career evolved over about a, an eight-year period, quite frankly. I never anticipated uh, becoming Johnny Gage or, or you know, uh, running on Engine 51. It just wasn't – I watched the show, but that wasn't something that I anticipated doing for a living. And I, I lived in a rural area at the time, and a friend of mine came up one day, and he said, hey, how would you like to help the community? And Join the fire department. I went, oh, hell, that sounds like fun. Sure. <laughs> I was in, you know, I was young and dumb. And so, so, <laughs> sure, why not? And, uh, and this was back in, I guess, the late 70s when this, or the mid to late 70s. And um, so I joined the fire department and the training was incredible. They basically said, put the wet stuff on the red stuff. That was your training. There you go. And we had <laughs> cotton duck coats. We had rubber boots that pulled up under your butt, your coat plastic MSA hats and white mule gloves that you bought at the hardware store. <laughs> this, this was their turnout gear. And uh, so anyway, so I did that for a while. And a couple of the rescue squad members came up to me and said, Hey, would you drive an ambulance for us occasionally when you're available? And I thought about it. And I said, well, sh- I can drive a fire truck. Sure. I can drive an ambulance. <laughs> and so I started doing that. Well, I go out with the rescue squad get on a call my thumb is in a totally inappropriate place yeah, I <laughs> anything to do i can't even spell emt at the time and and so uh i decide i need to get some training if i'm going to be exposed to this stuff so i went i got uh, emt 
uh, MTA, which was the basic level at that time in Virginia, and I'll, I'll say the state. And, uh, and so I got my MTA certification. And by that time I felt like I was a doctor. I could put a uh, stethoscope <laughs> around my neck and, and I could take a blood pressure and a, and, uh, a pulse. I could even put on a bandaid, <laughs> so, but that was about it. I'd go out on a bad wreck. I, my thumb is still stuck. So I, I, I went back and got more training, got shock trauma tech. And I'll try to shorten it as much as I can for you. But I went back and got my shock, tra shock trauma technician certification. That let me start an IV and push a couple of drugs for diabetic or something like that. And um, But then I'd go out on a bad cardiac call. Thumb still stuck. So I went back, got more training. And by this time, it's been about three years. And I'm running rescue on a regular basis. And so I get my cardiac tech certification. Now I can actually... Uh, you know, I can defibrillate. I can, you know, make them jump <laughs> and, <laughs> Clear. and, uh, and, and, and all the, the neat, cool things that Johnny Gage used it's to sure, do, sure, emergency. Oh but I realized God. that I was doing, I was like a cookbook medic. I was doing things. That if the book says, uh, this, if you see this, you do that. Yeah. If you see that you do this. Army and that's medic. what I did. I didn't know why. Yeah, I really didn't. So I, I decided I really wanted more insight. I went back to school, went back to a local college and got my paramedic certification, the national registry. And by that time, I really felt like I, I had a clue what was going on. And the very next month, the city where I lived opened up a paid system. Ah. And I went, I think I'm going to do this. This is my so career. That was it. Yeah. And, uh, and then talk about, which is, I was alluding to the flood. Oh God. The, uh, this, uh, I started in 1985 and in November, in January and in November of 85. And by the way, almost right on my birthday, like, like a day away. Um, we had, uh, uh, weather system that came in a stall dumped six, seven inches of rain, um, which most places can take. It's not going to, you know, tear them up completely. And, so we, that morning I, I reported to work and I got a call and the guy that was relieving was still there. My partner was not there yet. So we took the call and it was a cardiac call. Yeah. Just a few blocks away. We go up and, uh, realize that the water's getting high in the street and we start to cross the median and we end up actually going all the way up into a parking lot of a, uh, of a little shopping center to get away from the water. And then we waded across across the new little river, which used to be a air street, and uh, went to the call and talked to the guy and realized he really probably didn't need us. But we looked out the window and the people out in the water did. Wow. So we got back over and uh, my partner uh, for that day had already arrived. And so uh, her name was Sarah. And uh, she actually shows up about three different places in the book. I, yeah. If you, yeah. when you, when you finish it, you will see the, the last two of them. chapter actually yeah. is about her too. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, go out and we do the best we can again with what we have. We had no equipment for this. We were not prepared. The whole city was inundated and we didn't even realize it at the time. But we, I got on the radio and, and I'm saying, you know, we need boats. We need ropes. We need life jackets. We had about 34, 35 people trapped wow. in that one intersection. And they were hanging on to signs. They were in cars, on buildings. And um, I think one of the things that I mentioned, I saw a 
a uh, little yellow pinto go over the bridge yeah and there was a girl in it just screaming as she yeah. went off wow. couldn't do anything yeah um and then about uh well and then after the the water subsided somewhat oh and i went across the street to help this kid that was screaming he couldn't swim and it looked like he was in about four or five feet of water well i'm six feet three so i figured well i can wait over there get him bring him back i got about halfway there and I realized the water was way too deep. Yeah. So I took my boots off and I swam to him, got over there. He was standing on a three foot wall <sighs> and, and I'm going, I got news for you, dude. If I'd known you were standing on this wall, I would not be here. <laughs> you know? It's a good so thing. You didn't leave with that. <laughs> I wasn't being heroic. You know, I just thought I could go get him. But anyway, so I was in the water with him for about 45 minutes wow. until a friend of mine had gotten, finally got a boat. And it was a rowboat, believe it. <laughs> so I, I look up and I see Hank rowing toward me, and I'm going like, "God bless you." He looked like a freaking angel, you know. I bet. <laughs> so, and he got us out, and we, but we affected probably about 35 rescues in that one intersection. The entire city was the same way. I mean, everywhere we had helicopters picking people off of rooftops, uh, and then when we finally commandeered a bunch of boats from a dealership. Uh, we were going through streets that were flooded, getting people out of houses. And it was amazing. And it was quote unquote, the flood of the century in this area. And it was a very widespread event, you know, and that chapter began as many do in your book, as many do in real life. We talk about, it was just a normal day. What started out as a normal day. Can you kind of talk yeah. about how that is, how things happen in a, in a blink of a second, you know? Well, they do. I mean, your job is to, to take care of someone else's worst day and you're having just a normal day for at work. You know, you could be sitting down having a meal or a cup of coffee or, or whatever. And, uh, then all of a sudden you have to attend to a situation that is, uh, that somebody else is in dire straits. And that's, that's the job. And after you finish that one, you go back and you, you're ready for the next one. In closing, is there one story that I, I perhaps haven't read yet? Um, uh, that kind of is kind of that story you kind of like to tell at, at a get together with a family or <laughs> on the rocking chair, uh, that is kind of lighthearted to kind of take it to a, a, a kind of fun point. Wow. Uh, I'm going to be uh, pushed to think of something lighthearted. <laughs> <laughs> this is not really an uplifting book. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Not what you, it's, it's not it, what you read to your grandkids right before they go to bed. Yeah, it's compelling. <laughs> it's riveting. Uh, but there are funny moments, which is why I kind of went right to the well, the, one. The, the funny moments, I, as far as the, uh, the calls themselves, I, I'm not sure that any of them are really. To, oh, well, I, I'll go to one that I consider humorous. It wasn't for the for the patient. But uh, he was stealing gas from a, a vehicle that was jacked up, and he had the engine running. And he was running a, a tube from the, uh, the gas uh, down into a tank that was in the basement of his house. And so he was stealing gas from his employer, basically. Yeah. And so uh, we get a call for a, a fire. You know, we have a house fire. And so I respond i get there and i go around to the back like i would normally I, a lot of times i would uh, the battalion chief would have the ems captain which was my position go around to the rear of the building to be his eyes and ears in the back gotcha so i, I went around the back of the building which was side c if you will and there was this guy sitting there and he was 
all burned. And I mean, he was just in awful shape. So I called the medics to come around and help me out. We started working on him and I started looking around and his part of his hand was just almost torn, ripped off his fingers. And I'm talking to him. I said, what, what in the hell happened here? And I could see he was still in gas or he was, you know, siphoning gas. And, um, and he said, well, I was messing with the engine and I hurt my hand and he caught his hand in the fan belt. Oh. And so it, he fell back and he fell down the little steps going into his basement, knocked over the, the gas can. The gas went over to a pilot light in the basement and boom. boom. And so he had an explosion in his basement. He was, he had severe burns, uh, not as bad as Jason. And quite frankly, I will throw this in. Jason is one of the most inspirational people yeah. that I've seen. I've watched several of your shows. Oh. And between Jason and who was the other gentleman, uh, Brandon Griffith, I yeah. think it is. That was another or Lazarus. One. I was pretty, pretty inspirational. But Thank anyway, you. and so uh, and so we we uh, were treating this guy. The police come around. They realize that he's probably going to be get arrested for theft, and also maybe even arson. You know. And so, and so we get him on the stretcher and my God, I, I, I hear somebody yell, Oh my God. I turn around and the stretcher is overturning and his arm that was just burned horribly came out, smacked onto the pavement. The guy screams and there was a, a cameraman from the local news sitting right they there. They got it all. Getting everything. And oh. I knew him really well. I came up and I put my hand up to the camera just like that and i said please god don't care this <laughs> i said i need to see it in the station i need to look at it see what happened but please don't put this on the air he said you got it buddy. Oh, back when <laughs> so, the media was good <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> Uh, I, that was, yeah. Thank you. Now, see, that is funny because again, that is our humor. That is our world. Yeah. Having seen these things and and getting humor from them, even though they are tragedies. But and, I love the dark humor because yeah. you need that. I mean, some of us are really sick and twisted to where we watch. Well, we like stupid suspect stories. <laughs> yeah. That was well, you my have stupid to be suspect sick and story. Twisted even to do this, job. right? Yeah, exactly. Right? You see so much. I mean, how are you supposed to compartmentalize and deal with it unless you just flush that out? And the humor that you guys have is just—I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> Uh, Thank you. So I now the final question is, how do we get your book? Because this is a great book. I can't wait to finish reading it. And if you're ever in town, you're going to have to uh, come down and, and we'll we'll talk about it. Because and I do appreciate you. I got a signed copy. Oh, look at I you. Did. I'm I a little envious. Yeah. Um, Robin, yes. you can contact me personally. And I'll give you a signed copy, too. So. Oh, <laughs> I just scored. See? OK, there cool. You go. Thank you. you. Now, how do how do we get this? Uh, well, I'm I'm available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and all other online outlets where fine books are sold. I love <laughs> it. I love it. Again, it's Red Lights and Beyond: Death, Dying, and Destruction. And make sure yes, that you, if you uh, Google my name or you go on Amazon, put in David B. B. Pope. Pope. Yeah. If you put in David Pope, you're going to get books that I did not write. I, uh -huh. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. another, there's another guy out there. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, I got that too. That's why I had to put my middle initial because yeah. there's a professor there at Harvard go. with the same name as me. Yeah. How dare he? I know. Well, I dude, know. a professor of physics, no less. He's got the brain power, not me. 
Again, uh, I cannot don't thank you. yourself. <laughs> Dave, I cannot thank you enough for, for joining us on Bash Push. But more importantly, I thank you for, you know, like 40 years of dedicated service to your community in the EMS field as a uh, uh, fire captain, air medic, and even at the medical examiner's office. And volunteering your service, clearly it's in your DNA, sir. And I cannot thank you enough for a lifetime of service. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come on your show. I appreciate it. And we'll be right back with Cops and Robin. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Badge Boys. We'll be back right after this. If you like the Badge Boys, you'll love their books. Starting with Burning Shield, the Jason Schechterly story, which Arizona Diamondbacks president Derek Hall proclaimed, Jason is an inspiration and his story must be read and shared. The professionally written novel is a powerful biography chronicling Jason's gut-wrenching battle to health after being trapped in a fireball that consumed his police car and his high-stakes legal showdown against the Ford Motor Company for their explodingly lethal Crown Victoria police cruisers. Then there's Darren's award-winning Twisted But True book trilogy with close to 100 compelling and funny true crime stories that American detectives with Lieutenant Joe Kenda producer called the perfect blend of humor, heroism, and honor. And retired Colonel Dave Grossman declared, Darren's twisted but true books are hilarious, deep, and powerful. Each book in the series received the Pinnacle Award for the best true crime book, and a story from book two was featured on an ID Channel television show. And Robin's most recent book, Soul Stirrings, reviewed as an often humorous and spiritually uplifting story of a widow's soul-searching pilgrimage to the afterlife. Darren called it a love story, a ghost story, an investigative story. It's a story like no other. And Robin's first book, Victim No More, where she shares her harrowing experiences with rape and domestic violence as Robin takes the reader on a very personal journey through the morass of abuse and loss, and ultimately, survival. These Badge Boy books should be on everybody's top 10 reading list. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, what a nice interview. I mean, I, I loved I, you it. Know, I think for cops and firefighters, they're going to love it. Uh, I'm hoping the average citizen hearing these stories won't be too uh, grossed, grossed out. out no, right? less horror fans love that kind of stuff. Good point. And, and true we, crime people love it. Exactly. And we like dark stories. And again, uh, you know, that's the reality of our job. You know? That whole thing he was talking about, jump up. You know, yeah. when you put the defibrillator on yes. somebody's chest and they jump up. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just laughing over here. And I know it's sad and freaky because you're you're dealing with real life. But it's the idea that... Somebody can inject the humor into it yes. to get you through it. I mean, just in a bone saw. I mean, literally, who's going to grab Plus, a bone saw and oh, make, a, make that, a makeshift handle? And That and, was a bad yeah. day. Oh yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was a bad day. That's no insane. It. It's not the movie Saw, you know? No, no. No, it's real. Uh, yeah, Red Lights and Beyond. Death, Dying, and Destruction. And it is all that and so much more. David B. as in boy, Pope. David B. Pope. Uh, because, yeah, if you... Uh, Google it any other way, uh, you'll get some other author. So, and David, lights and beyond. Darren and I talked about it. You're going to get a copy of my latest book too. So we trade books around here. So yeah, we do. that's so cool. Yeah, I'm going to get my own copy. I, I look forward to it. Uh, you know what I look forward to? Uh-oh. Cops and Robin. He rocks in the treetop all day long. Hopping and a-bopping and a-singing his song. All the little birds on Jaybirds 
That just brings back memories from my days in oldies radio. That kind of used to play that to get into the whole scene of it. How could they not with Rock and Robin? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Bobby Day. Yeah. It's like oldie but a goodie. So we have some headlines today, Darren. Please hit me. The U.S. House Oversight Committee to hold FBI Director Ray in contempt. Ooh. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to go too deep in this because the FBI has already had a bad week last week. We kind of mm-hmm. went over a lot of hemorrhaging and they're still bleeding out. Um, this was over a document that initially, at least if you believe what the Congress, which is the Republican led oversight committee is saying, is that this document was supposedly non-existent. Then all saying it is, it, it exists. So, it depends on what you want to believe. But the main thing is the FBI is accountable to Congress. That's mm-hmm. the bottom line. It really is. I don't care if it's the Republican-led Congress, it's a Democrat-led pro- Congress. They are accountable. They have to be accountable to somebody. And so they are held accountable. So um, we'll see where this goes. Uh, we've had some bad leadership uh, as of late in FBI. Um, and <laughs> there may be some new leadership Ahead. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, But yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And I won't go too deep in that one. Uh, Well, this next one kind of makes me sick to my stomach to Uh even read it. New York City officials place vending machine Uh, in downtown with free crack pipes and other things. Really? Yeah, this is this is not a uh, fake headline. This is actually real New York City um, health officials uh, or their brainchild, and this is true, this is not a st- stupid suspect story, it, it's hard to believe this is real, but it's a very fancy vending machine, and, and it, it costs somewhere, and again, you, you can see I have nothing from me, just off the top of my head, I wanna say it was from ten to $11,000 vending machine, and that's the vending machine, because it's high tech, it was really, you know, um, break in proof, if you will, because this is out on the streets in downtown New York, and, it's uh, a, a model, and they're going to do more of these, and they're going to add more things other than just clean, pristine crack pipes. In fact, in this particular one, there was not just the crack pipes, but there was also other stuff associated with drug paraphernalia to include Narcan. Um, Narcan, of course, is used in overdoses. It precludes the death, if you will. In other words, they somehow it tricks the brain receptors somehow and again we had a doctor come on that talked about that dr g from our um assault on big bear lake by Mm -hmm. uh, christopher dorner uh dr uh, gerges came in and talked about narcan and and how it's used and and how expensive it is that was one of the things he talked about is what we like to get this in the hands of uh, police officers across the country and and schools and different places where these accidental as well as intentional overdoses or poisonings i think they're better said poison when the fentanyl is and so forth is in them um but really we're putting it in a vending machine and they're like oh, i'm sorry i didn't even tell you how much it was i want to say those um narcans are like 500 dollars a pop or something if and i remember sometimes right. it takes a couple of them to get oh, someone sure, to come clearly, back it's clearly. not just one and done and this vending machine had rows of them so 
And there's nothing that would stop somebody from from going to this vending machine, which is, by the way, free. All you have to do is put in a zip code, a New York zip code. So some guy could go in and just keep putting zip code after zip code after zip code, get himself 20 of these packets, clean out the machine, and he's gone. Uh, to my knowledge, I, I, I may be overstating something. Somebody from New York City, please, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I don't think, I think it's a honor system on this. There's clearly no money exchanging. You don't have to put anything in the machine to get said items. You pick what you want. You put in a zip code and you get it. It was completely, well, I shouldn't say completely. It was pretty much sparse. Everything of any value to anyone was taken in a 24-hour period. Done, gone, and this was a huge vending machine. This is not, you know, a little uh, old-fashioned um, camel smoking, you know, cigarettes vending machine that you find in one of these old hotels. This was a high-tech, huge, big blue monstrosity of a vending machine that had row after row after row of again all these different products to help and power criminal activity as it relates to illicit drug use so in a it's, city that is having an overdose uh epidemic uh highest records like almost 100,000 people i think last year again i'm i'm saying numbers i believe are true i please don't hold me accountable but uh horrific numbers as it relates to um uh opioid overdose deaths in new york city specifically that's what this was addressing how's it addressing it it's like it makes no sense. It Darren, this is, this is an oxymoron because let's take it for face value, right? You're, you're handing out illegal items that a cop can arrest you for and charge you with drug paraphernalia. In any other city. Any other city. And then you're, you're going to do that and then you're going to catch and release. And what, what's the purpose? How is this dealing with the issue of overdoses. It's, it's not. not. It's not. It's not. It's empowering and it's providing a more mechanism to said crime and worse to said epidemic. In other words, you're enabling, you're empowering, you're going to make the situation worse. You're not making it better. Um, this is not just a bad idea, not just a dumb idea. I call it reckless to point of being criminal. Um, yeah, you're going to help kill people off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of the bottom line of it. Yeah. You're helping to kill people off by support. Get them by some supporting sort of, their habit. Yes, exactly. You know, no, get it's them, horrible. It's and just, and these wow. these items could be better served, not the crack pipes, but the uh, narcon in the hands of first responders. But no, they're going to go right to the general public so they can sell it in a black market scenario. There's so many bad things to this that we could talk two shows in length. About how stupid an idea this is guys i love new york i have a, a a really cool bond with new york but this just really pisses me off it's just one it's, it's wow you just think it can't get any stupid stupider it's stupider 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 they're like stupid suspects right yeah, yeah all right yeah. well we, i know it's not a word but <sighs> i love that word stupider it, it can kind of work it, it, in this situation it works perfectly <laughs> yeah you're stupider okay so we have one more headline please cop city Vote ignites more protest in Atlanta. Yeah, not Ugh. just the vote, the successful vote, I might add. So uh, two, two, actually, I have like three schools of thoughts here. First, let's talk about what's going on. Cop City is the phrase that the protesters, the rioters, the domestic terrorists, quite frankly, are using to describe a large training facility for both the fire department 
and the police department. And this is so dire, truly dire, and I mean that in every sense of the word, the need for this facility because their current training facilities harkens back to the 60s. I mean, mm. or maybe even in the 50s. It's ridiculous. It's basically trailers um, providing a uh, academy setting where the training can go on. And, and I'm assuming it's good training, but it's not a facility that would provide a lot of people to go through. So in other words, there are a shortage of... Um, and again, I'm, I'm going to say a number that I think is accurate, you know, right around like 500 short of police officers and a little bit less than that of fire department. We need, we as in Delanta, um, we need those services now. The crime rate is rising. It's ridiculous. I heard one councilman who voted for it say that they have like a thousand um, um, hot calls, 911 calls like a, during a 24-hour period wow. or something ridiculous. And it's like you need more, not less. You, you need funding to provide the training. So here's my – so first of all, it's not Cop City, but that's fine. You want to call it Cop City? I, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to own that as a Cop City, but really it's a fire department and police um, uh, training facility, and almost all major cities have one. The people that are protesting this to come in, in my opinion, my humble opinion, two forms. There's those who are the clueless. They are the rebels without a clue as who they are. They're your young, dumb, inexperienced, don't have any life experiences. They're just dumb and they want to protest something. They got into the whole 2020 riots, which I call the rioting 20s, <laughs> and they are still there. They're just clueless and they're dumb and they're they're wanting to fight the idea that Cop City will become a militarized training facility, which would become violent. So how do they stop it? Through violence. That's how stupid mm -hmm. they are. It's almost like anti-fascism using fascist tech, you know, techniques. You know, in other words, using violence to th force your political agenda because you fear fascism. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Asinine. It's ironic to a point of being stupid or stupider. Wow. So... That's one set of group of people. The other group of people, which I would refer to as your Antifa, because they have a definite mission in mind. They want to destroy government, period, end of story. Whether it be police, whether it be liberal, whether it be Democrat, whether it be Republican, they don't care. They just want to destroy government. And then theory of chaos, they get to live in the squalor of, because they want to live like that. They also have the group's of BOM, which hate police. And they would love to see police in a failing mode. In other words, they're just waiting with bated breath for the next bad cop scenario. And it will happen because the more uh, we defund, the less quality of, of candidates you get, the less training you get, and so forth. And then there's the next aha moment for them, which is, mm -hmm. see, told you so, uh, their self-fulfilling prophecy based on their action. So they want to destroy cops today so that Cops don't receive proper training so that there will be this bad next video. Those are two types of, of yahoos that are, are trying to stop this. And here's the third point that I love. Good for Atlanta. Their city council voted overwhelmingly, not unanimously, but overwhelmingly voted this in. Even with 14 hours of straight um, 
folks coming in that are these Antifa types or BOM, BOM types, or I'm using the, this word in, in air quotes, activists, because they're, again, rebels without a clue. They're activists acting in the worst possible way for their community. And uh, so um, good for Atlanta for passing this. And in other words, what we saw in 2020, we saw city after city, to include Atlanta, succumb to the violent few. The loud, violent few was able to turn city after city after city against the police, which means ultimately against their citizens. Atlanta got it right. They said they just held held strong, and they passed this, and good for them. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. And that is our Cops and Robins. And we'll be right back with our last segment, which is stupid suspect stories, horror headlines, and inspirational closing message. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Riders Organization is all about. Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at ArizonaFallenHeroesMemorialRiders.org. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. I love our Cops and Robins segment. It's so much fun. I mean, the music, I love that. You, get, <laughs> you need the upbeat music to, to drown out all the garbage that's going on. In the world yeah. and the headlines themselves. Yeah. And these were, you know, for the most part, ridiculous uh, start with the vending uh, and this and the FBI. I can understand the free vending machine for condoms because at least you're oh, helping, 100%, 100%. But, but giving drug paraphernalia away, what the heck? It's it, it just asinine is Ugh. the perfect way to say it. Yeah, Ugh. absolutely. But uh, again, I liked how we left out almost on an upbeat note in a yeah. sense that for once the uh, city council in a very liberal city did the right thing. So good for them. Right. Good for them. Um, so now we got stupid suspects. Yeah, we, we have uh, uh, two stupid suspect stories. Uh, the first one is uh, with a video from an airline's rowdy drunk passenger dragged off Southwest Airlines flight leaving New Orleans. Yeah, a rowdy and drunk passenger was arrested and dragged off the Southwest Airlines plane from New Orleans as annoyed travelers cheered in a bizarre moment caught on cell phone. Yeah, they were literally, again, this made me feel good. They were cheering the cops because this Kansas City woman... Uh, Cameron Gibson was detained following an outburst that ended with her biting and kicking a sheriff's deputy at the Louis Armstrong New Orleans International Airport. 25-year-old Cameron appeared drunk on board the flight that was scheduled to take off before it was forced to return to the gate on the evening of May 29th, which was Memorial Day. Yeah, she did this Memorial Day. Apparently, she was kicking the seat in front of her. And putting How her feet dare up she? And, and just being a jerk. It was so bad that the pilots um, decided to stop the taxiing. They were literally ready for takeoff, and then they returned. They were so close, so close to gay. It's like, you know what? We're not going to put up with this. Uh, deputies uh, tried to coax uh, Miss Gibson. I'm pronouncing her as a, a lady uh, uh, with all the evidence to the contrary. Um, they tried to uh, coax her off the plane peacefully, but she 
quote, refused to exit the plane multiple times, the, uh, the uh, deputies told the uh, um, media. Uh, the video of the uh, tussle has emerged on social media. It shows the woman being dragged off the plane. But what was interesting about it is at one point she says, I literally need my phone. Uh, she said that's at one point, and then she goes, quote, I'm literally so confused. What's happening? And that's the part that I really like, because one of the passengers, a female, you can hear her say, quote, we're not, meaning we're not confused. <laughs> You're under arrest. Oh, yeah. uh, she continued to fight these cops off the plane, onto the jet bridge um, a- area, and then into the public seating area where she was eventually, you ready for this? Um she was handcuffed to a wheelchair so that she they wouldn't get she kept kicking and spitting and biting. She was just a jerk. Um, and this is the video of of that encounter. Seven thirty p.m. when I paid for my flight. Get off. Oh, okay. oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. because I'm drunk and being stupid. But what I like about this is the citizens got it right. They're there cheering on the police for getting rid of this idiot. Uh, and that kind of reminds me of this next video that you'll be seeing in a second. Uh, this next headline, 10-year-old steals SUV, drives on the interstate, intending to meet his mother in a police chase. Uh, yeah, this 10-year-old boy stole a car and took it on an interstate ride in Michigan uh, last month in hoping of meeting up with his mother, who was in Detroit. Um, the juvenile driver stole this 2017 Buick Encore. It's a nice vehicle. Uh, and then drove um, about 35 miles north of Flint, Michigan. A police spokesman said that the boy, who was shorter than five feet tall, stole the vehicle because, again, he was trying to get to his mother. Now, again, he's shorter than five feet. He literally could not barely see over the steering wheel barely could see he had to kind of reach over uh, so what was interesting about this mess is that onstar was involved and when the car was stolen the victims called onstar onstar called the police onstar disabled the vehicle even with all that this kid was a menace and it's captured on video the first video you're going to hear is the Deputy talking about what occurred. Westlake 911, what is your emergency? Yeah, there, I'm on 90 West, and there seems to be what well, looks to be a child driving a silver Infinity. I'm pretty sure there's a car chase going on between a mom and a son right now on the highway. The kid's probably going at least 90. While pursuing the vehicle, the, se- the speeds exceeded at times over 100 miles per hour. One car is he kicked one trooper in the shins, spit in one trooper, and tried to spit on a few other troopers. He was very animated and agitated at the scene. The child wasn't injured. 
none of the troopers were injured and, and none of the motoring public was injured either. Can you give them a spanking? Oh, you big know, time? It, yeah. And what I love about this is you can hear these good citizens on the roadway calling 911. Again, good citizens doing the right thing, uh, saying what they think they're seeing. Uh, it was obvious to everyone that this was a kid driving. What angered me about it was not only did this kid steal somebody's car, they cr he crashed their car. He endangered all these people on the roadway, right, on a, a freeway with speeds in excess 100 miles per hour. These officers, excuse me, um, deputies and, um, and um, state troopers risked their lives to, you know, deal with this idiot kid. And then the media has this to say. If this driver seems inexperienced, it's because he is. Dashcam from Michigan State Police recorded their pursuit involving a 10-year-old boy and a stolen SUV. It happened in Saginaw County on May 27th. Eventually, the OnStar service was used to disable the Buick and kind of breaks your heart. The child told police he did it because he wanted to go visit his mother in Detroit. No, it doesn't break wow. my heart. And that's the problem with the media. They instantly go into advocacy mode without even knowing any of the facts of the case or anything. They get a headline, they, they go with the video, and they don't even present it in the, the way the news should be presented, which is this kid was absolutely a danger to not just himself, which there's your old bleeding heart. Can you imagine if he killed anybody? He, if it wasn't for OnStar, if it wasn't for the troopers, you know, risking their lives, there's no reason in the world to think he wouldn't have. Right. He was on the interstate going over 100 miles per hour at 10 years old, barely able to look out the windshield. This was absolutely destined for a lethal interaction with some other vehicle. Um, thank God for everybody involved. Thank God for the citizens. Thank God for the cops. Um, to your point, yeah, he needs a spanking. Big time. Big time. I'd be and putting my size 11 high up that anal canal. And big so time. does the media for saying, oh, bless his heart, he wanted to see his mommy. Yeah, yeah, right. And <clears> that <throat> is my stupid suspect story. Wow. Oh, seriously, dude. I didn't, yeah, those guys were pretty heroic. But I, yeah. I'm going to take us over to the good side of things, and we're going to read today's heroic headline. Officer Donovan Cobble, a four-year veteran of the Metro Nashville Police Department, was released from the hospital this week after a suspect shot him when the officer confronted an armed man breaking into vehicles. Employees at an off-site parking lot for travelers at the Nashville International Airport called police when they noticed an armed suspect breaking into cars. Metro Nashville Police Chief John Drake said, We've had a problem with theft from vehicles, especially guns that have been stolen, especially in this area near the airport. Officer Cobble approached the suspect, who then began running, jumped a fence, and then fired shots at Officer Cobble, hitting him in the chest. Officer Cobble returned fire, striking the suspect. A surveillance video shows Officer Cobble shouted, show us your hands now, to the suspect as he exited his patrol car. A foot chase begins as Officer Cobble weaves through parked vehicles after the suspect. Another officer chasing the suspect yells for him to stop. Officer Cobble removes his taser from his belt as he chases the suspect on the grass toward a wooded fence. 
The chase continues as the suspect hops the fence, followed by Officer Cobble as they cross a street running between homes. I'm going to tase you if you don't stop right now, Officer Cobble says in the video. I've already got you. He then says, drop that gun, as more than a dozen shots ring out. He then kneels over, telling another officer, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. Ooh, scary. Officer Cobble continues to chase after the suspect as the two make their way toward the street. Officer Cobble enters an unmarked police vehicle where he is heard saying, I shot him, I think, as the surveillance video cuts out. Officer Cobble was struck by a bullet in the abdomen at least once. His partner rendered aid while other officers began tracking the suspect to a field and set up a perimeter to contain the suspect. SWAT officers were called to the area less than a half a mile from the parking spot to find the suspect. SWAT officer Brewer, a 16-year veteran of the police department, was clearing brush when he came upon the suspect. Officer Brewer began shouting commands to the suspect and reported seeing the pistol. The suspect fired at Officer Brewer, missing him, and Officer Brewer shot the suspect. SWAT officers rendered aid to the suspect before he was taken to a hospital. The officer and suspect were both transported to Vanderbilt University Medical Center. The suspect, do we even say his name? I don't, I don't. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. You want to? No. Yeah, this POS who was 37 years old who shot at officers, he died at the hospital and one of Officer Cobble's lungs had to be reinflated. The Exchange Club of Donaldson Hermitage honored Officer Cobble with an Officer of the Year Award. And also to Officer Brewer, thanks for taking that POS out. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I really love that story. I love how that particular um, group is within the same precinct where uh, Officer Cobble works. So that precinct's... Um, a Rotary Club or what have you, uh, you know, did right by that precinct because, yeah, that was heroic for him to continue running after the suspect uh, until other officers could get involved. How heroic is that? And he was released from the hospital, I want to say yesterday or maybe the day before yesterday. He was released and he was in good spirits. He had a whole group of cops waiting outside the hospital for him. So it was kind of a nice sight to see. And if I butchered your name, officer, I apologize because sometimes we don't get pronunciations with these things. But the fact that you survived and you went home to your family, I'm happy for that. Yeah, I think it is Cobble. I think yeah. it is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great so story. It's yeah. just awesome, especially, you know, Brewer taking him out, because sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to yeah, take out the threat. Apparently, there is an issue there within uh, near the uh, airport where they're boosting cars and looking for guns, because right. a lot of times they... Um, People can't go to an airport, obviously, with a gun, so they leave the guns in the cars. And so that's keep that in mind as a just as kind of safety tip. You go to an airport and you have a gun, it's like, oh, I'll just leave it in my car. Get a bolted down safe underneath your seat that they can't get out. Or leave it at home. That too. Yeah, yep. Yep. yeah, yeah. I'll leave it for the wife or the, or the husband. Uh, we're going to go from the heroic to the inspirational. Um, last Tuesday was June 6th. June 6th is D-Day. So this is a pretty long special closing measure, but I really like it. It's how Normandy honors World War II veterans on D-Day. And this is the 79th anniversary. There's still some of the greatest generations still alive, which I just love. And, and we've had them on the show. We had an incredible person who survived Bastogne. Oh, my gosh. Um, 
an overwhelming sound of a gunfire and men's screams. That's how World War II veteran Marie Scott described D-Day as Tuesday's June 6th ceremonies got underway in honor of those who fought for freedom in the largest naval, air, and land operation in the history of the world. This year's tribute to the young soldiers who died in Normandy also reminds veterans, officials, and visitors of what Ukraine faces today. Not to get to political, but on Tuesday, the whistling sound of the wind accompanied many reenactors who came to Omaha Beach at dawn to mark that 79th anniversary of the assault that led to the liberation of France and Western Europe from Nazi control. Some brought bunches of flowers, others waved American flags. Scott lived it all through her ears. She was just 17 years old when she posted as a communications operator in Portsmouth, England. Her job was to pass on messages between the men on the ground and to U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower and other senior officers who were supervising the operation. She said, quote, I was in the war. I could hear gunfire, machine guns, bombing aircraft, men screaming, shouting, men giving orders, she recalled. Quote, after a few moments of horror, I realized what was happening. And I thought, well, you know, there's no time for horror. You got a job to do, so get on with it. And that's what I did, end quote. Now about to turn 97, Marie said D-Day was a pivotal point in her life. Quote, as a noncombatant, I was still in the war and realized the enormity of war. She said, quote, people were dying in that moment. She was disgusted that even another war is going on now with the Russian occupation of Ukraine. On Tuesday, a cer- that ceremony took place at the American Cemetery in Colville, Summer, overlooking Omaha Beach, which is the home to the graves of 9,386 U.S. soldiers most of whom lost their lives in the D-Day landing itself. On the walls of the missing are inscribed 1,557 names. Some of those names have since been recovered. So that means 8,000 unknown. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin III, speaking before more than 40 World War II veterans and a crowd of visitors, said, quote, It is our duty to defend the principles for which the Allies fought. We seek a world where civilians are safe from the ravages of war. The Normandy celebrations were a chance for Milley, General Mark Milley, who is, uh, took part, he is the Joint Chief of Staff Chairman, by the way, to linger with troops who consider him one of their own as he winds down his own four-decade military career. The general held commands in both the 82nd Airborne Division and the 101st Airborne Division, and the Normandy fields, towns, and causeways were all part of that hallowed ground. Quote, for me, being among soldiers is home, he said. This is what I love about honoring on Memorial Day. And they did it on D-Day in Normandy, out at Omaha Beach, where all this horrible tragedy occurred based on an oppressive entity like the Nazis. And we fought. That was the greatest generation. And I've, I've joked about we went from the greatest generation and today we have an end great generation. And, and that's not true. We have men and women in the service that are fighting for our freedoms. They're fighting and there's always been, seems like war as it relates to, you know, the Gulf and, and, and you know, and, and all the, the things going on in the world. It just seems like there's always some place where somebody like Russia now is oppressing someone else. And right. These men and women fighting and dying to protect us. Um, and this, a lot of citizens don't realize how good we have it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is a moment, again, having 
Memorial Day just passed, and now with D-Day, I just cannot thank you men and women for being in the military service and protecting us from harm. That is so inspirational, and that is my inspirational closing message. I cannot thank you, Robin, enough for being my rock and Robin and being in the place of our Jason, who is out inspiring others. Uh, I cannot thank Dave enough for giving us a pulpit at Star Worldwide Studios. But most of all, I want to thank you, the listening audience, because without you, there is no Badge Boy. So thank you so much, and until next week, stay safe. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Badge Boys.